Welcome to a Doom to Repeat mini episode. So, from time to time, we're going to release mini episodes in between our full length episodes. Um, they're not going to be as polished, but they're going to be interesting nonetheless. Uh, sometimes they'll be related to the topic at hand. In fact, this one is. It's another interview for our craft beer episode that didn't exactly fit um, with the overall topic at hand, but is an excellent interview. Um, sometimes they won't. Sometimes they'll just be interesting kind of filler uh, that we will put together. This is Doomed to Repeat. Welcome to Doomed to Repeat. This is the history podcast out of Georgia State University. I'm one half of your heroic um, hosting team. Uh, Nick Hoffman's not with us here today. This is kind of a bonus content. Uh, we have a whole episode about the history of craft beer and the way that drinking habits and the beer market have kind of been revolutionized in the last um, 15, 20, 30 years since the rise of your Sierra Nevadas and your, uh, you know, New Belgiums and so forth. We talk about that in our other episode, but this is a really cool interview that we did with a great historian, uh, Professor William Rohrabaugh of the University of Washington. He's the author, um, first of the Alcoholic Republic back in 1979, which was, uh, you know, obviously an irresistible title. Uh, it's about the way that Americans used to drink a lot more than they do in the 20th century or the early 21st century, um, and sort of the origins of what becomes the temperance movement and the prohibition movement, but going all the way back to sort of early Republic frontier America. Really fascinating book. Uh, Professor Rohrbaugh is also the author of several other great books, including The Craft Apprentice, Berkeley at War, and Kennedy and the Promise of the 60s. He's got really um, wide-ranging and, and diverse research interests. Now, we talked with Professor Rohrbaugh about um, the politics of beer, wine, and whiskey in American history, uh, how generational attitudes have changed toward booze from the 1830s to the Great Depression era to the post-World War II era, the boomers, the millennials. Um, you know, it says a lot about our values and our attitudes um, toward uh, life and food and drink, uh, the way people drink or don't drink. We also are kind of kind of talk about what craft beer has to teach us about today's economy and uh, the age of the customization of everything. So it's an interesting conversation, um, and we hope you enjoy it. Um, and here we go. Thank you. Well, thank you so much for being with us, Dr. Rohrbaugh. Um, I'm Alex Cummings. I'm here in Atlanta, Georgia, at Georgia State University. And I would like to add that I am drinking a um, Monday night brewing slap fight India pale ale, which is quite tasty. Um, we've got Dr. Rohrbaugh here today. <laughs> That's, that, is, that is perfectly fine. Go ahead. Um, Well, you know, in this episode, we're thinking about the history of what is now known as the craft beer revolution, Uh, this idea that microbreweries, small businesses have experimented with all different types of beer and really changed the market for this particular type of alcoholic beverage since basically the early 1980s, and this has become a big part of the culture. 
Um, so we wanted to talk to Professor Rohrbaugh about uh, his book, The Alcoholic Republic, um, which is one of my favorite books. Uh, I read it in grad school. Um, it was on my comps readings, and uh, it really offers a fascinating sort of insight into American life in the 19th century, especially the early 19th century, um, and the ways that people drink, and the ways that they have drank, and the ways they've gotten croissant uh, over time uh, in different ways. And so it was really eye-opening and really, uh, along with a lot of the other readings about that period, really, you know, was so insightful and illuminating to me. Um, so we kind of wanted to talk to um, the professor about his book um, and sort of the longer-term trajectory of the way American drinking habits have changed. So I guess, you know, the typical opening question would be something like, why did you get interested in this? Where did your project start from? Uh, it really was kind of an accident. I was actually a graduate student looking for a dissertation topic, <laughs> and I stumbled across ten volumes of temperance pamphlets uh, in the library stacks at Berkeley, and what was peculiar about this is that they were temperance pamphlets not from the 1890s or 19-teens, but from the 1820s and 1830s. And, of course, if you lived on the West Coast, almost nothing from the 1820s or 1830s would be on the West Coast. So the first conclusion you had was there must have been a lot of these published because otherwise no one would ever have managed to send them you know, all the way out here. And it actually was a winemaker in the Napa Valley who had collected them and put them in <laughs> binding and donated them to the library at some point. But I was fascinated by this massive uh, temperance movement of the 1820s and 30s and realized uh, fairly quickly that you know, the reason there's a temperance movement is that there's a lot of drinking. <laughs> so right. you have to then start looking at the drinking. And the drinking became much more interesting than the temperance movement because many people had written about prohibition or the origins of prohibition. And it was fascinating to see the massive drinking habits. Uh, Americans were mostly drinking uh, whiskey at the time. They were drinking, the average adult male was drinking about a half pint of whiskey a day. <laughs> Something like three, three times the present rate. So I don't know that they were drunk all the time, but they sure were paused. <laughs> well, that's I, when I read the book. I saw the like the charts in your appendix, and I was it's just right. it's just staggering. It's like oh my god, how, how did people function? I mean, um, it just well, it was pre-industrial really society. That's the key. And indeed, the temperance movement coincides with the rise of the industrial movement. And, you know, capitalists who had workers using machinery were not so happy with drunken workers showing up and wrecking the machinery or killing themselves on the machinery. And so that's when the temperance movement really catches on. But when, you know, before that, uh, it was a society where people had a lot of leisure time. There wasn't a lot of work to be done because there wasn't a lot of you could make something, but could you find any way to sell it? There was no market. And so people sat around drinking all the time. <laughs> <laughs> Did people drink on the job? Was that part of the culture? Yes. Uh, they took whiskey breaks instead of coffee breaks. <laughs> <laughs> that would make our uh, faculty meetings a lot more interesting, I think, if we... If we yeah, well, I mean, it was, they, 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 whiskey was the, com the most common beverage. It was safer than water. 
because the alcohol killed the germs. It was safer than milk, which also you know, could be mm-hmm. bacteria, bacteria. And it was cheaper than anything else. It was 25 cents a gallon, so it was really cheap. And they would drink it mixed with water, of course, but, uh, but they just drank, you know, breakfast, they drank whiskey, uh, lunch, they drank whiskey, dinner, they drank whiskey, and they took whiskey breaks in the morning and the afternoon. And of course, there's always a nightcap. Of course. Before <laughs> going to bed. So they were just drinking whiskey all the time. Wow, it's like that Johnny Cash song, uh, the beer I had for breakfast wasn't bad, so I had one more for dessert. Um, yes, yes, yes. That, that, that whole trope, I think, really stayed. So the point, actually, if you want to back up a little bit, uh, the hardest drinking place in the world is Europe. Mm-hmm. Europeans drink more than people on any other continent. Why that's true isn't clear, but it is true, and it's been true for thousands of years. Uh, the wine in the south, the beer in the north, you know, and... Um, and so since American colonists came from England or from other European places, they brought the heavy drinking with them. <laughs> Did they drink beer, though, in, in the early, in the period that you write about, like 1790 uh, they to some. They drank some beer in colonial America because it was made by housewives uh, for home use. Now, beer does not keep. You know, it spoils very quickly because it has such a low alcohol content. And so unless you had a town that was large enough where you could sell enough beer, you know, you, mm-hmm. you make a batch, you don't want to throw half of it away. That would be a waste. So you have to sell it pretty quickly, which means you need a fairly large population in order to support uh, the sale of beer. So except in the cities, and there weren't many cities in colonial America, uh, Beer was relegated to this kind of home production of what was called small beer because it had a very low alcohol content. And a housewife would brew it up, and they might drink it for two or three days, and they would throw it out. But that's before the whiskey got there at 25 cents a gallon. And the whiskey was cheaper than the beer wow. to produce. And it was cheaper, you know, and of course it kept. So you could buy whiskey and keep it and use it with water and water it down, and it was the same thing as drinking a strong beer, I suppose. Right. What what else did people drink at the time? Well, uh, in terms of alcohol, they had, they had consumed rum in colonial America, but after that, there was an import tax on both molasses, which is how you make rum, and also on rum itself, and so that kind of causes rum to fall by the wayside and be replaced by whiskey. And whiskey does become the most uh, common drink by the early 19th century, and remains so until... Uh, during the Civil War, when a large tax is put on uh, hard liquor, on distilled spirits like whiskey, and a much smaller tax is put on beer, and of course one of the effects of that is to make beer cheaper than whiskey. <laughs> so <laughs> people start switching to beer after the Civil War, and of course there's German immigration, which also has something to do with the switch to beer. <laughs> right, yeah, so immigration is part of the story in that sense, because um, you have Germans coming in large numbers in the mid-19th century, but you also would connect it to urbanization as well. And the immigration is from Europe, which is from heavy drinking cultures, particularly from Germany, beer, Ireland, whiskey. And the saloon keepers are all, you know, Irish or German. And it really becomes an ethno-cultural, political uh, identification. So native-born Americans of pre, you know, Irish pre-German immigration ancestry, which actually means mostly probably Scots or or, uh, English, uh, they're the ones who give up alcohol in the temperance movement and become teetotalers. 
and then they look down upon people who drink at all. And so there's a kind of split in the population between drinkers and non-drinkers. See, that's the but, thing that I find... Like by 1840 or 1850. Yeah, that's the thing that I find so fascinating because it becomes such a moralized issue, obviously, and then it gets sort of tied up in ethnocultural conflict, and then you get the dries and the wets, and then it... Oh, right, and then you have the Prohibition controversy, which in a way starts in the 1830s. But, I mean, it, st- it starts with voluntary abstinence, and then after half the population stops drinking, they decide the other half shouldn't drink either. <laughs> that uh, one of the things I find fascinating about this uh, as I've traveled around the United States and and outside the United States and different countries um, is that the U.S. is one of the few countries in the world that has ever banned alcohol uh, along with Pakistan, Saudi Arabia, Arabia, probably Oman. Like, there's a few places, but, you know... Actually, Russia banned alcohol during World War I it was one of the czar's dumb ideas. They had had a state monopoly on distilled spirits, you know, vodka, and the tax commissioner was appalled because, of course, they lost all the tax revenue. Did it stop drinking? Of course not. It just led to a lot of bootleg liquor. <laughs> and But it may have had a, something to do with the overthrow of the czar because it sure made the czar unpopular when, you know, in the middle of the war he tries to take the liquor away. <laughs> Note to self. Lenin, was, Lenin wasn't that stupid. He bought the liquor back. <laughs> Like FDR. Um, so I guess my question is, like, you know, compared to Britain or France or Germany, like you said, where there's a pretty significant drinking culture, um, you know, drinking at lunch, you know, drinking every, you know, at dinner every day, um, is the U.S. like a uniquely prudish country in this regard? Well, it's the evangelical Protestant legacy, the, the people that... The evangelical Protestant Second Great Awakening of the 1820s and 30s is what creates the temperance movement, and the proof of salvation is abstinence. But people also, you know, people who need to dry out themselves become evangelicals as part of what happens, but then evangelicals look upon not drinking as proof that you're really sincere in your religious beliefs. And you don't find that there are evangelical movements in other cultures, but they're not as big. They don't have the same sort of massive size that they do in the United States, and so that's why you don't find the same thing. You know, Scandinavia particularly had evangelical movements in the late 19th and early 20th centuries, and of course they also had movements to ban alcohol in uh, Finland, Norway, and Sweden. Uh, and But they didn't, you know, it didn't work. It didn't come off because the evangelicals weren't big enough, important enough to <laughs> so that's the, the difference, I think. That's so fascinating. That's such an interesting sort of geography of of attitudes, because even if you look in the United States, I feel like if you go to New York or Philly or Boston, there's a little bit different attitude about drinking than there is in the Southeast. Or, you know, based on what you were saying, maybe in the upper, maybe in Minnesota, there's a different attitude about alcohol based on that sort of cultural... Uh, there's a lot knowledge. of local cultural 
local cultural variation. For example, there are many people in Wisconsin that will tell you quite sincerely that beer is not alcohol. <laughs> not because, I mean, they recognize that in some sense there's alcohol in beer, but they don't regard beer as a really alcoholic beverage because it's so weak. And so, well, for example, I, I was at the University of Wisconsin one summer, some years ago, and noticed in the summer that at the pub at the university, I mean, there were 16-year-olds sitting there at the tables drinking beer. You know, the drinking age legally may have been 21, but as far <laughs> as the university group pub was concerned, uh, the only person they ever carded, if they ever carded anybody, was the person who bought the pitcher at the at the window <laughs> and who sat at the table. Well, that didn't matter, you know. So it, I thought that was quite fascinating because in some other parts of the country that that would be considered definitely something you could not do. Oh yeah, I mean, I remember uh, I grew up in the South and went to school uh, university in the South and. Uh, when I visited the University of Rochester in New York and saw that there was a, a pub on on the campus, uh, to me that was shocking because I couldn't imagine something like that happening in the, uh, you know, sort of upstanding, uh, you know, mores of the of the southeast, the evangelical Bible Belt. Um, and, right. Yeah. There is a and well, and of course, one of the things that you know somebody took research some years ago, which showed that, uh, you know, the, the, what you might call the Bible Belt paradox. Uh, Baptists have the highest percentage of abstainers, but also the highest percentage of alcohol abusers. <laughs> <laughs> Figure that one out. Or the same study showed that Jews had the lowest percentage of abstainers and the lowest percentage of alcohol abusers. Uh, in a way, the argument has been made that in Baptist culture, alcohol is so rejected that no one knows what to do with it and so you either totally stay away from it or you use it totally right you can't in other words you don't have any inhibitions whereas in the jewish culture uh there's ritual you know ritualized use of wine and it's on a very limited basis and it has a religious significance and so that gives a kind of respect for the substance that warns that it's a uh, it's a powerful substance that should be used in very discreet and, and you know, carefully measured ways. But that's the difference in the psychology. That, that makes I, I don't know whether that's true. I mean, this is what one study showed. <laughs> I mean, it makes intuitive sense, right? If something is uh, kind of stigmatized and pushed into the shadows, then... It's different than if it's part of the sort of right. uh, warp and warp of everyday life. The most interesting thing that's gone on in the last uh, 40 years, uh, alcohol consumption dropped dramatically during Prohibition. There are some people who argue otherwise, but they're just wrong. <laughs> and in 1933, when alcohol was made legal again, the consumption was way below the level of 19. Uh, 17. And, of course, part of that was the Depression. People didn't have money to buy alcohol. But also, there was a generation born... Think about this. If you were born in 1900, you wouldn't have been able to take your first legal drink until you were 33 years old. <laughs> <laughs> there were a lot of people in that generation that never drank because they were scared of the bootleg liquor was dangerous and you don't know what you're really getting. And then by the time they were, you know, legally could drink, they had, they were married and they had children and they were not used to drinking and so they never bothered, you know, so it just didn't happen. And alcohol consumption only starts rising during World War II. 
And it's, you know, the, and then when the GIs come back from the war, they're a very heavy drinking generation after World War II. Yeah. And they drank a lot of hard liquor. And then their baby boomer children looked around and drank about the same amount of beer as their parents, but they kind of didn't drink the hard liquor. Instead, they drank wine. Right. <laughs> so you got wine, beer, replacing hard liquor and beer. And then alcohol consumption starts, it, it rises because of those two hard-drinking generations up to 1973. And then from 73 up until about 2005, alcohol consumption drops by a third. And the reason it drops is the next generation is so health conscious. They're so worried about their health. They're out there doing exercise. You know, this is when exercising and, and health clubs and, you know, bicycles and all this, this running and all this stuff comes in. And so they start doing that instead of going to bars. So that's, a, that's a big change. And then... Uh, immigration turns out to play a role because we're no longer getting European immigrants. Now we're getting immigrants from Mexico and Central America and from Asia, and those are low-drinking cultures. Those are not cultures where alcohol is used very much. And so the states that used to be the highest-drinking states, like New York and California, are now among the lowest-drinking states because of immigration. They had like 40% decline in alcohol consumption per capita. See, this this seems like the same situation we were dealing with earlier, where it's like, yes, there were lots of people who were drinking a lot, and yes, there were evangelicals and temperance people, and so it's hard to, it's hard to pin it down as one story of, you know, we're a drinking culture or we're not, or drinking has gone up or it hasn't. Um, and I guess my... Well, the one thing you... I think Jack Blocker actually got it right when he, in his book called Cycles of, of Temperance, and when he argues that it's a, sort of a cyclical effect, and drinking goes up and up and up until people see there are real social problems that are created by people who have, you know, serious alcohol problems. Right. And so then there's a reaction against alcohol and more restrictions of some kind, whether it's prohibition or just restrictions of other kinds, depends. And that goes on for a while. And then, of course, the alcohol actually does go down, as it did between 1973 and about 2005. And then when it goes down, then people say, oh, well, alcohol's not such a big deal. And then it starts rising again. <laughs> so it's, it goes back up. And so it's been rising for the last 10 years. The present younger generation is a heavier drinking generation than, the, than their parents. I'm thinking their parents are not baby boomers, but are the children of baby boomers. And uh, I think the Iraq and Afghan wars play a big role in this. You know, there are three million Iraq and Afghan war veterans. Right. And I think there's a lot of heavy drinking that's going on there. But I also think that there might be just a generational shift as well. Um, I mean, think about the people who are millennials or younger. They've grown up in a world of 9-11, Katrina, recession, you know, just a pretty baleful prospects, and I don't know if that contributes to it in any way. Or well, yeah, that, yeah, but it's not, I mean, it's, it's interesting, because in the 1930s, you had relatively low drinking, mm -hmm. so it's not, you know, if the economy's not very good, that doesn't explain, it, it's a, there's life choice decisions, and what you see is uh, millennials sitting at bars, <laughs> spending what little money they have on very expensive drinks <laughs> at bars. Uh, as if maybe this is like buying the one luxury they can afford. You know, you can't afford to buy a car, or you can't afford. You certainly can't afford to buy a house, so you buy a drink. Well, that's that's what <laughs> I was. Maybe a kind of luxury substitution uh, what... process that's going on. And, but, but it's a way to meet people too. I mean, let's let's you know, 
Mm. The sociability aspect of alcohol should never be uh, forgotten, and so you do have a have that aspect, I think, as well, that may explain why millennials may be uh, reversing this trend that had been downward for so long. Well, that's what I was. I mean, that's kind of what I was thinking. Is that uh, I would have thought. I would have assumed, I haven't looked at the data, and you, you indicated that alcohol consumption has gone up in the last decade or so, and, you know, really, because of this craft... It's gone up, but it's nowhere near 1973. It's still way below that peak. But, I mean, people are drinking IPAs that are like 9 or 10% alcohol, and in, in Georgia or North Carolina or South Carolina, that wasn't even legal until about 10 years ago. Um, they had right. actually passed laws right. that lifted these, you know, it was called pop the cap because there was a, you know, usually a law about like 5% was the maximum that a beer could have as alcohol content. That's Since right. they changed That's those right. laws, the whole, there's been all the this... Whole brew, the whole brew pub industry really, if you start analyzing, is really based on getting around those kinds of limitations mm. because often the way state laws were written, they would restrict retail sales, alcohol limits, you know, would be uh, pretty strict. But if you had a brew pub, then you could get around that. The brew pubs didn't have to comply with the same regulations. And so this has led to uh, a shift uh, toward more potent, Beverages, at least in the beer category, and that's true for wine too. By the way, Uh, typical California wine in the 1960s would be 10 or 11 percent alcohol, and now when you look, a lot of them are 13 and 14 percent. Wow! And it's hard to get 14 percent out of a grape without some, shall we call it, enhancement. <laughs> you, you have to evaporate some of the water out, or something. Like that. You have to somehow ma- manipulate it so you get that higher percent. But you know, if you think about the difference between ten percent and fourteen percent, that's a forty percent increase. So mm-hmm. three glasses of one is like two glasses of the other. So yeah, there's a big difference there. And 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 people prefer. I mean, if you ask, you know, which wine is better, it's like why do they always go to the fourteen percent bottle, right? <laughs> <laughs> hmm. Life, life's little mystery. Which is the same thing they're doing with the with the with the nine percent beer right well you know one of the things the belgian triple the belgian triples (laughs) (laughs) yeah no i know what you mean um it used to be that the delirium tremens was like very high gravity because it was like eight percent and now there's you know much more common beers with much higher alcohol content um the thing that i was i found most and one of the things i found most intriguing in your book is that you talk about how you sort of looked at like social scientists and cross-cultural comparisons, and we've talked about that quite a bit. Um, you know, you talk about how drinking cultures aren't, quote, random, and um, they reflect the underlying values and maybe worldview or attitudes of the right. society they're embedded in. And I wonder, what, what do you think that the change in um, drinking culture or drinking habits or maybe the craft, like the popularity of craft beer, um, what do you think that says about contemporary American culture? Well, I think that's a serious question, and I've thought about it. And I was, uh, I had a private tour of a brew pub in Seattle some time back. And what's interesting about that particular brew pub was that the owner, who had previously been a wine uh, sales guy, but he realized he didn't have the money to open a winery, so he opened a brew <laughs> pub instead, which is interesting in itself. Brew pubs are cheaper to start than, than wineries uh, for a whole lot of reasons. And Every person who worked in that brew pub was both a, 
a maker of the beer and a server. So first you made the beer and then you went upstairs and served it. So when the customers, you know, asked the server, uh, the waitress or waiter, in other words, uh, what did they recommend? I mean, you know, they knew what they were talking about because they had made it, right? It was real personal investment in the product. I thought it was a very clever marketing strategy for upstairs in the restaurant. And it also gave the, the workers, you know, the experience on both sides of being producers and also being sales, you know, salespeople at the same time. And so it, it was, you know, it was instead of separating those jobs, which would have been the way it would be in a normal brewery. And I, I suppose he probably actually was, it was more expensive for him to do it this way, I'm sure, because he had more bodies that he had to rotate around. But it made everybody feel that they were part of a common camaraderie effort. And you could tell that you know, from the comments down in the, brew, in the brewing area. And the way that everybody related to everybody. Is this so it's quite, you know, the boss was the boss, but there were only 25 employees. So, you know. Is this a change just <laughs> a in the different way than that... working for Anheuser-Busch, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> Is that just a change in the way millennials think about work and business and organizing the workplace? Yeah, or? Yeah. I think you're right. I think that's the point is that it's the, it may be the millennial way of drinking, but it's also the millennial way of working. Mm-hmm. And it's about small scale and local and personal and experimental. I mean, a lot of the beers that they made in that group hub came from the staff. You know, they were ideas that came from the staff, and the owner would approve, you know, say, well, yeah, you want to try that? Let's try it and see what happens. You know, if it's no good, we'll throw the batch out, right? <laughs> if it's great, we'll serve it upstairs. <laughs> and then we'll see if the customers upstairs want to order more, right? <laughs> but that's how they actually pick what's on their menu, you know. Yeah, I, I was. I'm curious about that. I mean, I was sitting at a bar the other day in Atlanta, and I asked about something on the menu. And I guess I asked if it was a local beer. And uh, an older woman who was sitting next to me asked, you know, why do you why do you ask that? Like, why why is that um, something that you care about, or why is that a concern? And I said, actually, I don't really know. I guess I just want something that is unique or something that's different um, than what you would find somewhere else. And uh, it seems like there's this great desire for something that's uh, a little more um, less standardized, I guess, or I don't know. I mean, because... Customized. Everything should be customized. Right. It's like the customization of food, the customization of computers, the customization of cell phones. I mean, you have a cell phone, you put on your apps, right? <laughs> so everything is about customizing it the way you want it. And that's that's a kind of millennial expectation, I think. Wow. Which mass mass uh, marketing and mass uh, production people, because of all the you know the way computerization is done, they've actually figured out how to do this so that it can, you don't have to make a million automobiles where everyone is exactly the same. It's Chrysler used to do. <laughs> this is like uh, post Fordism or just in time production or something like that. Yeah, well, it's still just, it, it, only now it's more sophisticated. It's just-in-time production the way the actual customer wants it. Right. Not some third party who says, oh, we, this is what we should try to sell. You know? Instead, it's actually, this is the person on the computer, uh, you know, logging in and saying, this is what I want. I mean, I think companies like Walmart or Amazon on their websites have really, you know, they, what they order depends on what they sell. Literally, hour by hour, I mean, they, they say, oh, 10,000 of these sold in the last hour, that means we need to order more. 
now, you know, and you get them ready for two days later. Right. Sort of instant production. And that's something quite new. That's fascinating. I mean, the ironic thing is that it's also happening at the same time that the beer industry has been consolidated into, like, four huge companies, uh, like Anheuser InBev, right? Yes, it's a great irony, isn't it? It's like two ends against the middle, so there's no room for the mid-sized brewers that used to exist. I mean, Washington State once had two very prominent local brewers, Rainier and Olympia, uh, and those, you know, those disappeared because they were not big enough to be giants, and they weren't they weren't brew pubs. They weren't, you know, they didn't operate at that level. So, uh, and I think that's. Yeah, I, the, the, the giant breweries are always going to have the advantage on price. I was in uh, London, Ontario some years ago and for a conference, and uh, the Labatt's had just opened a new brewery there that produced 3.5 million barrels of beer a year. So how many workers did it take to produce 3.5 million barrels of beer? <laughs> That's a lot of Labatt. <laughs> eight. Eight? Eight? Wow. Hey. Thank you, Mr. That's Peter. all automated. Yeah. Totally automated. <laughs> and, uh, you know, so this is the opposite of the brew pub. So you get a standardized product, uh, and you compromise on all sorts of things. Uh, you're obviously looking for the lowest possible price. I mean, that, by definition, with that kind of a product, that's where the market is. It's not about taste. It's about price. Uh, and that's where the brew pubs have the edge, because then they can say, well, you have to pay more for our beer, but it tastes better. <laughs> Would you well, at least ra- some of it tastes better. Some of it doesn't taste better, which is <laughs> annoying. Would you rather drink... I'm sure you've had that experience. <laughs> Would you rather drink two high-gravity IPAs or, like, five uh, Labatt Lights? So, I mean, you know. <laughs> well, they may have different purposes for different, uh, different uh, <laughs> this is occasions. True. <laughs> so, might matter uh, where, when and where you're... Uh, what the circumstances are as to which is appropriate. And, of course, one of the things about it, literally a brew pub is they don't actually do bottling and they just serve it on the premises. I mean, you don't have a choice of taking, you know, you can't get a bottle. So right. You have to go there, to which is different. But then the, the social experience of going to the brew pub is also an important element, isn't it? Yeah, I guess it's an experiential um, good in some you're ways. You're selling the experience. Yeah. And that's part of what you're doing, is selling the experience, so that people are willing to pay the higher price because it has a social experience aspect to it. Well, for a guy who hasn't written about this for a while, you seem like you've uh, still been thinking about it quite a bit. Oh, I try to keep up a little bit with what goes on in the, in the business. <laughs> <laughs> you, know, um, you know, who knows... Who knows what we can learn by drinking, but I think we can learn a lot by looking at drinking. So uh, we really appreciate you so much taking out this time to talk with us and share all these insights. Uh, there's just so much we can learn by looking at the history of, you know, uh, what people, uh, you know, uh, drank to uh, serve whatever variety of uh, purposes or, or uh, uh, needs or desires they wanted to fulfill. So uh, I want to thank you so much. I'm very happy to participate, and uh, thank you for asking the questions. And I, uh, I do think that history does inform the present, and I think that uh, understanding how people drank in the past tells us something about why they do or do not do what they do in the present. Absolutely. I couldn't agree more. Well, that's actually, I'm just like, that's sort of the end of the official uh, interview part, just a nice little ending for the recording, but um, 
I, I, I wonder, have you seen um, this book that was written by a friend of mine called Jews and Booze? Yes, yes, I have. Marnie Davis, yeah, it's so fascinating about just, you know, how uh, Jewish Americans navigated the whole Prohibition situation. <laughs> it's a really interesting, right. interesting story. In fact, I, just, I was just in Germany on a vacation, and I was in Munich, and, and I hadn't realized that Lohenbrau was Jewish. Hmm. Uh, I didn't the, know that either. I mean, the name brand is, you know, just means lion's brew. But uh, and Lohenbrau actually is in the heart of Munich, and it has deep wells. And actually, the beer at that brewery is really worth having. <laughs> really good beer. Better than what they export to the U.S. But when Hitler came to power, he forced the ownership out put new owners in, and part of the family emigrated to New York and founded Rheingold. Ever heard of Rheingold? I, I, I have had Rheingold in New York, uh, unfortunately. Yeah, it was a, basically a local, you know, never really made it outside of New York City, and I don't know that it was all that great beer, because always, you always think of it as being in cans, and it had sort of a penny taste to it. But, yeah, uh, it's but not very good. <laughs> the family get picked in there, you know, probably their Lowenbrow recipe and <laughs> replicated it in New York for a while. Yeah. And then eventually Reichel disappears and the family got the right to import Lowenbrow into the U.S. Yeah, when I when I had Rheingold... Oh, they're, was, the, they're the importers. <laughs> I, when I, it was right around the time when Rheingold got revived, like it had been a brand before, and then they went out of business for a while, and, and then they decided to bring it back. And somebody bought the title. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah, I don't know. Like, if there's a Rheingold today, I don't know what relationship it has to the early one. It's, yeah, it's not your top shelf uh, material, but... Um, no, this is. Uh, anyway, I thought that was kind of. I thought that was kind of interesting. That is. No, that's totally fascinating. Um, well, um, thank, thank. Uh, if I may call you Bill, thank you so much. I mean, like, sure. this is uh, really cool. I've I've loved this book for a long time, and it's really cool to talk to you about it. Okay. Well, thanks very much. Hey, you have a great day. You too, Alex. Bye bye. We would like to thank Dr. William Rorabaugh for his help um, and this wonderful interview you guys got to listen to. Um, the theme music uh, that we play is written by Tender Pony. Alex Cummings is an associate professor at Georgia State University. His book, The Democracy of Sound, Music Piracy and the Remaking of the American Copyrights in the 20th Century, is available in both paperback and hardback wherever books are sold. Follow his blog at Tropics of Meta. Nick Hoffman is a lecturer at Kennesaw State University and a Ph.D. candidate at Georgia State University. He is a producer for this episode and for everything at Dude Letter Podcasting. Um, and I guess while you're there, of course, look up The Alcoholic Republic. Uh, it's still around. It's a great book, and um, we appreciate you listening. See you next time. <laughs>